2: Wrapped in plastic. It's essentially dead. Or a bomber. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th.
3: You wear shiny objects on your chest.
2: Beautiful. Just so beautiful.
3: Are you proud?
2: Well, I was very well known, as you understand, prior to this. But that was a different world. This is something you are really in your own little world.
3: My log has something to tell you. Do you know
2: it? It's a great guy, good heart, tough guy, but a good heart, great Do heart. not
3: introduce
2: the log. Well, there's truth to that. There is truth to that. Can you hear it? You look, there's a certain openness, but there's nobody out there. But I've never seen anybody out there, actually.
3: Do you understand?
2: Look, you can figure it out yourself. What the hell is going on?
4: Deliver the message.
2: Well, everyone thinks that this is very ominous right here. See this? These are phones, these are very, you know, secure phones. But this is a very ominous looking because of the red button. But it gets you something. You can take it any way you want. It's enough. Thank you. Thank you very much. Time for a cup of Joe and a donut. Twin Peaks will be right back.
1: This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 14 of Intercepted. On Tuesday night... The FBI Director James Comey was in Los Angeles, and he saw on television screens news that he had just been fired by President Donald Trump. Uh, Trump, uh, simultaneous to the news breaking, uh, reportedly sent a letter to the FBI officially informing James Comey that he was no longer effective immediately, no longer the Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And in Trump's letter to Comey, he said, While I greatly appreciate you informing me on three separate occasions that I am not under investigation, I nevertheless concur with the judgment of the Department of Justice that you are not able to effectively lead the Bureau. This is sort of an incredible statement in and of itself. It's as though Comey's job was to fluff Trump about his uh, alleged non-existent role in in, in the so-called Russia scandal. Trump is referencing a letter that Jeff Sessions uh, supposedly independently sent to Trump saying he supports the recommendation of the newly appointed deputy attorney general who wrote a memo justifying why James Comey should be removed from office. And in that memo, uh, which has now been made public by the Trump administration, uh, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, says that. Director Comey, he's referring to James Comey here, I cannot defend the director's handling of the conclusion of the investigation of Secretary Clinton's emails, and I do not understand his refusal to accept the nearly universal judgment that he was mistaken. Almost everyone agrees that the director made serious mistakes. It is one of the few issues that unites people of diverse perspectives. What he's referring to is James Comey's public announcement in the midst of the final stages of the presidential campaign that the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails had been closed uh, with no charges being brought. Now, of course, Obama was still in power. Loretta Lynch was the attorney general. Comey said she had a conflict. What he did was proper. The Trump people are now saying, no, that wasn't. And they cite both Democratic and Republican former attorneys general in supporting this decision. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague and fellow co-founder of The Intercept, Glenn Greenwald, who is with us here in New York for a change.
4: It's my debut um, appearance in inside The Intercepted studios. It's very exciting.
1: So now, now, Glenn, of course, the Democrats all are immediately piling on, and it's that Comey uh, was getting too close. The noose was tightening around Trump's neck over the Russia investigation, and that Comey basically needed to be taken out by Trump before... The smoking gun was presented to the American public that would impeach and probably imprison Donald Trump. What's your immediate reaction to this uh, news?
4: I mean, I'm someone who generally doesn't find much of what Trump has done to be shocking, given what he said he would do during the campaign and who he revealed himself to be. But this actually is shocking. So as much as I'd like to, I can't really blame people for scrambling around for an actual theory. The theory that you just identified, which is that, oh, he had to sabotage Comey who was about to find or reveal the smoking gun, makes no sense to me whatsoever. The the, the premise is is that James Comey and only James Comey is aware of a smoking gun, and that as long as you fire him, somehow then you prevent its disclosure. When, of course, other people who work with Comey, other people in various departments would also be aware of this evidence that that existed. And James Comey himself, now that he's fired, could ensure its disclosure. So that I don't find persuasive. But I also don't find persuasive the DOJ's explanation for why they did it, namely these criticisms of Comey, many of which are actually valid, namely that he took it upon himself to decide that
1: the, the investigation should end. Right, and he announced that uh, he, what what the Trump people are basically saying. Well, there's two there's two main components to this. On the one hand, they're saying you were wrong to announce to the uh, to the public that we're closing this investigation into the Hillary Clinton email scandal, which became just the the harpy point but for Trump saying, in the closing it's stages. It's a process
4: objection, right? They're not saying you were wrong to close the investigation, although they do think that. They're saying it wasn't up to you, James Comey, even if Loretta Lynch couldn't make it, it was up to somebody else to make it. So that was that's one objection that is not in. Valid, And the other one is that when he decided to close the investigation against Hillary Clinton, instead of just saying so, he gave all kinds of opinions about the case that were all very negative to Hillary. And a lot of people think it was wrong for Comey to comment on an investigation that he decided to close. But the thing about it is, even though those those investigate, those criticisms of Comey are valid the Trump people don't care about that at all. They loved when he stood up in public and denounced and criticized Clinton once the case was closed. And they don't care at all about these process objections. So Although I don't agree with the Democrats that the reason is is to prevent Comey from being on the verge of the smoking gun, I also don't think that the Republican explanations for why this happened are even a small amount valid. And so it leaves the question, why did this happen and why did it happen now? And I don't think we know the answer to that yet.
1: Right. And 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 let's remember that there there definitely uh, there, there's a lot of smoke and there's uh, a little bit of fire with some of the people that are around Trump, uh, Paul Manafort, you have Carter Page, General Flynn is floating out there in the ether and has reportedly been actively seeking immunity. And I think this is an interesting question about uh, about where Flynn uh, resides in all of this, uh, because we haven't heard from him in public. But remember, General Flynn was the uh, was the first high profile military figure who had served in a very senior position under Obama and was fired by Obama, he was the first to jump onto the Trump train. He did public interviews with him on the road. He bolstered his military credentials. You know, Trump really was kind of uh, taking Flynn's lead on a lot of what he was saying about American foreign policy and the military. Flynn may be a lot of things, but he is not an imbecile. And he was around for a lot of private stuff that was happening in Trump land leading up to uh, his election and then leading up to the inauguration. I'm just curious uh, if part of this is that there actually is a move to take down not Trump, but that there is some action against someone that's incredibly important to Trump. They're concerned that Flynn is flipping that Comey is seems to be playing too nice with the Democrats and publicly debunking the president's tweets in front of uh, Congress. Trump's a spiteful guy. He wants fierce loyalists. But is it your sense that there there is no Russia connection to the firing of James Comey?
4: So again, I mean, there there are clearly serious Russia questions when it comes to people like Paul Manafort, who I think primarily has problems because of his financial dealings and undisclosed uh, lobbying work. Carter Page is just some kind of extraterrestrial troll freak that has little to do with the Trump campaign except in name only, who probably has all kinds of nefarious implications. So I wouldn't be surprised if Comey was investigating and making some headway when it comes to people like Manafort, Carter Page, even Roger Stone. Again, though, on the question of was there collusion between the Trump campaign at the highest levels, the kind that would get him into serious political trouble or impeach him, and the Russian government, it makes no sense to me whatsoever— that if you're worried that evidence is about to be discovered, that's some kind of a smoking gun or something close, that anyone would think that a solution to that would be getting rid of James James Comey. He works with dozens of other investigators in various agencies, including the Department of Justice. So even if you got rid of him, that evidence isn't going anywhere. So that that theory just doesn't seem persuasive to me.
1: Right. And then there is the fact that much of what we know about Trump's, you know, recent uh, public history uh, is from his television show, The Apprentice, where the whole point of the show was you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And and so, you know, some of that is at play here. Um, but I, I I do wonder if the Trump people think they're outmaneuvering the Democrats, the, the lying fake news media, and that there is is some intention of creating this kind of chaos uh, right now as kind of their best defense against any number of legitimate issues that are being probed of this administration.
4: That I think makes sense. In other words, if you speak to anybody who has ever worked with Trump, what they say is he demands this kind of compulsive, unhealthy level of loyalty. Anyone who he thinks is disloyal to him, he fires. So I think that's been a big part of what they've been doing is trying to weed out you know, the Sally H's of the world, um, people who they think have loyalties elsewhere and replace them with hardcore Trump loyalists. And I think they've seen that James, J- James Comey prides himself on not being a loyalist to anybody. And there's a lot going on at the FBI and they want someone in there who they who they trust a lot more than they trust him. That's what I think makes a lot more sense.
1: I, I think it's clear that uh, that in firing James Comey, if it is related to Russia, Either Trump has done the most outrageously stupid thing he could have done by not keeping his enemies closer and turning potentially Comey into an unprecedented sort of whistleblower yeah. if he comes out publicly, um, or Trump is a genius and there there isn't anything there with him on Russia. And by firing Comey, he's going to send the Democrats into a tizzy, the press into a tizzy, and there will be some you know pawns that fall on the board as a result of it. But if Trump really knows that there's no there there with his Russia maybe he is smarter than everybody thinks.
4: Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, if you're Donald Trump, you have to be pretty comfortable about the question of collusion. You have all kinds of people saying, and not Trump loyalists, but people like James Clapper and even Diane Feinstein two weeks ago to Wolf Blitzer, that look, no, they have not seen evidence of collusion. And if there were evidence of collusion, you know, some kind of intercepted telephone call between um, some Trump, Spawn and someone in the Kremlin talking about hacking—you can be damn sure that would have leaked by now.
1: Well, or you know, but but then there's also the the idea that they have a video of Trump with you know prostitutes or the the, the sort of pee video and all of that. I mean, who who you know there's everything is out there. Right. The last thing I'll say as as we wrap up here, Glenn, is. I continue to just be astonished, even though I should I shouldn't, at how willing so many cable news journalists, particularly on MSNBC, uh, but also Democrats, are uh, willing to believe any shit that's flung against the wall uh, of Trump that uh, that it makes that wall look horrible. They'll believe it, and I think it's going to undermine. The, the real issues that are there. I think it, you there know, is, is a I, legitimate I, investigation I, right. that it's, should it's, be had. I
4: think we've talked about this before, but you know, it, was, it reminds me so much of the Benghazi investigation where there were serious national security questions about what happened in Benghazi, why they were there, why they ended up killed. That got completely suffocated by the unhinged conspiracy theorizing and just obsessive fixation the Republicans developed on Benghazi on totally unrelated issues. That to me is exactly what is happening when it comes to Russia. All of the legitimate questions that ought to be investigated have been swamped and suffocated um, you know, by the Keith Olbermans and the Louise Menches of the world who who think that there's a, a Putin agent hiding under every every corner and, and who make all kinds of evidentiary connections. You might want to throw Rachel Maddow in there too, um, notwithstanding the fact that there's no rational basis for doing so. And they look like Glenn Beck in 2010 as they do it, standing at the chalkboard.
1: Well, Glenn, I, I I do want to also share with our listeners that when we first started The Intercept, you said that you wanted to be paid in rubles, Um, and I, I appreciate your uh your honesty about who you want your paymasters to be. And
4: I appreciate that you had in your home this massive vault of, of rubles from the work that you've done over the years that you were able to use to pay me, and I appreciate that as well.
1: All right. Well, Comrade Glenn, I'll see you at our next summit in Moscow. Glenn Greenwald, thank you for being with us on Intercepted. Great to be with you. Glenn, of course, is my fellow co-founder of The Intercept. (music) Next week, on May 17th, Prisoner 89289 is scheduled to walk out of the Leavenworth Military Prison in Kansas. Back in 2013, that prisoner was handed the longest sentence ever in U.S. history for being a whistleblower. The bulk of that 35-year sentence that was handed down at the end of a US military court-martial was commuted by President Barack Obama. The prisoner I'm talking about is US Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning. Now there's a lot of talk in the news right now about leaks and about Julian Assange and about WikiLeaks. And we hear from Julian Assange. He is able to respond to allegations against him. We hear from the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. Both of them were on our show last season. But we almost never have heard from Chelsea Manning since she was arrested in 2010 by the U.S. military in Iraq. We have almost never heard her voice. She was arrested while on active duty in the Army on suspicion that she had been the source for what at the time was the most explosive series of national security leaks in US government history. Chelsea Manning was ultimately charged uh, by the military and presented with an avalanche of allegations, charges, including very serious ones like aiding the enemy. The documents that she admitted in court to providing to WikiLeaks beginning in 2010 uh, included hundreds of thousands of classified US State Department cables. Uh, Videos of U.S. military forces bombing or gunning down civilians, war crimes committed by U.S.-backed forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. She uncovered covert wars, the U.S. attempt to conceal its role in the bombing of Yemen beginning in the first year of the Obama administration. Since 2010, Manning has been held in various prisons and facilities beginning in Iraq, then Kuwait, then back to the United States. And while she was in the custody of the military before her court-martial, she alleged that she was at times abused by her jailers. Some of the worst episodes, uh, she says, occurred when she was held by uh, U.S. Marines in Quantico, Virginia, before her trial. When Chelsea Manning was arrested, no recording equipment was allowed in court. Many of the publications that benefited from her whistleblowing, they put it on the front pages of their newspapers, they barely covered her trial. The narrative about who Chelsea Manning was and who she is has been largely set by the military, by the government, and also by cable news. Coverage of her has not, for the most part, focused on what she did or why she did it. But rather, what is presented is this sort of despicable fixation on the fact that Chelsea Manning is transitioning from living as a man to living as a woman.
2: Uh, You know this guy, Bradley Manning? Yes. Yeah. He's he's now Chelsea Manning. Oh, All man. right. This isn't really justice. Yeah, it's I, I, therapy. A yeah. Traitor. He's a busted. He he's gave a, a, a traitor.
4: Correction. It was
2: it was uh, Chelsea Manning, not Bradley Manning, who did that.
4: <laughs> oh, yes. He, he has changed, or she has changed. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Well, well done, Andy.
2: Thank you. <laughs> yes. How are your treatments going, by the way? Well, they're not as quick as I would like. <laughs> right. When can we start
1: calling you, Andrea? <laughs> the Associated Press, NBC, and the New York Times agreeing to call Manning she, but he's not a she. Technically, on just. Definitional grounds, technically, it's uh, he. We recently obtained several hours of secretly recorded audio from the court-martial of Chelsea Manning. Now, there have been uh, a couple of other leaks of audio from those proceedings, but most of what you're going to hear today from her has never before been broadcast. To discuss all of this, to discuss Chelsea Manning, her whistleblowing, her trial, and her treatment at the hands of her jailers, We're joined now by the researcher and writer, Alexa O'Brien. She was the most dogged journalist covering the Manning trial, and because of her and her work, much of what we do know about what happened in those proceedings uh, is because she was there. Uh, At times, actually, Alexa slept in her car outside of Fort Meade as she worked around the clock covering this trial. Alexa O'Brien, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me. How did Chelsea Manning describe her treatment at Quantico?
0: There were several different episodes at Quantico. She, what I've heard from, you know, being in the in the courtroom and, and listening to her discuss it, she just discussed the sort of play-by-play of how she tried to sort of reason with the military brig that she was in um, in Quantico, Virginia, and the way in which they reacted to her. Uh,
3: I, didn't, I, I, tried to, I tried to feel as much like I wasn't trapped in, a, in like a, a cage or a cell. I tried to feel... Uh, like I wasn't trapped in there, um, that you know, I still know where I am. I know my environment, uh, and uh, I would just try to stay active, and uh, um, and I'm trying to keep from from falling asleep because they uh, that was a rule. You were not allowed to sleep or look like even the appearance of sleep was uh, considered sleeping, so you couldn't close your eyes or anything like that. So.
0: Well, legally, she was unlawfully punished before her pretrial. She only got 112 days sentencing credit for it. But, you know, legally, her, her treatment was extreme. She was not officially legally in, sta- um, sorry, solitary confinement, but one could look at her conditions and consider them solitary confinement. She was segregated from the rest of the population. What was weird about her circumstances is that she was placed in a temporary facility, a Marine Corps facility. She was a U.S Army, a private. She um, was a long-term pretrial, you know, she was up, on, up for charges on espionage. She wasn't getting out of uh, pretrial confinement. And she was also known to be gay and then also there was at that time, the, the military knew that she had tr- gender dysphoria, so, uh, so you know, um, gender identity issues. I think her treatment was uh, unfair. At the same time, though, looking at it from a sort of structural manage, managerial point of view, I think that the military – it was also a bit of a clash of cultures. You know, they're a very fraternal sort of organization. And, and even from the testimony of people, you know, they wanted her to talk and she wasn't talking. And I think that they resented that because she's a soldier. She should tell him what happened, you know, and her lawyer told her to keep her mouth shut. So what's interesting about how Manning describes it is that she's actually very respectful of the, her chain of command, her current chain of command. You know, she's not a uh, rabble rouser or a provocateur, but she's actually somebody who really cared about the mission and wants to get along with people. So she wasn't exactly sitting in the courtroom saying, like, oh, I'm a victim. She was just sort of reciting what had happened in her treatment. Now – what about service
3: discrediting? Do you think that the, your, your conduct in giving the video to WikiLeaks was service discrediting? Uh, yes, Honor. Why? Well, it's, for the service discrediting, it's it's about public perception of the military and the services, and uh, our ability to and their tr- and their trust and their perception that we can safeguard our sense of information for their protection. So by not abiding by those um, by by the system. Uh, it, it undermines uh, our our service and, our, and their perception of how we operate Okay, so basically if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly is you know people uh, the military would hope that people have confidence in the system and the people in it to follow the rules and basically if you don't have any rules or people aren't following the rules I mean if there's more than one person that's doing what you're doing and uh, the whole system crashes. Yes, sir.
1: Now, when um, Julian Assange or WikiLeaks discuss this case, they still refer to Chelsea Manning as the alleged source of the a variety of documents. The most public and perhaps the one that made the biggest splash initially was the um, collateral murder video that depicted um, a U.S. helicopter gunship uh, gunning down some Iraqi civilians and also media workers from the Reuters news agency.
2: I since then. Just
1: fucking once you get on, just open them up. I um, You're clear. All right, uh, firing. line, line up. Uh, let me know when you gather. One them all up. Two traffic two Come on, two on, fire. Hey, What's your understanding of the origin of this story? Like, how how did that video end up? broadcast to the world, what do we know from Chelsea Manning's own telling of the story and from your journalism? Like, how did we get to from the point where WikiLeaks puts out this video or the State Department cables or the Iraq war logs or the Afghan war logs to Chelsea Manning being arrested by the military?
0: The first time that Chelsea Manning saw that video, she was actually watching a couple people in her intelligence shop discussing the video. Um, They had found it on a shared drive from the previous you know, group of folks that had been in Iraq before them. And she was sort of being instructed on it. But they didn't really talk about um, standard operating procedures or the rules of warfare with regards to it. They were really just sort of talking about it in a general way. So what Manning did, according to what we know from the court record, she looked at it and at first she said that she really was numb. But she started to do research on it and she realized that this was actually – video that uh, Reuters had been trying to obtain uh, regarding two of their employees because two Reuters uh, employees were killed in this incident. So she really did her homework. You know, when she gave that to WikiLeaks, she also um, gave them the rules for engagement for that time period. I'm not sure if I remember if they were classified or unclassified, but, you know, this is not somebody who was willy-nilly just like, you know, uh, like an anarchist just like throwing stuff around.
1: So that the video comes out and, of course, is covered across the globe by media outlets uh, around the world. And it really was – I think for many people, it was the first time they heard of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange in terms of how much media attention it got. What happened after that video was released with Man- in Manning's life and time in Iraq?
0: I think that's really when Manning probably started to – and I hate to use this term, but started to sort of unravel a bit – Unravel in the sense of, like, the way that sometimes it's good to unravel, you know, meaning to say that she, she realized sort of the impact that it had to, to some degree. And obviously she was undergoing a confrontation within herself at the time around her gender identity issues, according to the court-martial. And it coincided with her maybe understanding of the sort of greater truth of who she was as a soldier in Iraq, you know, that kind of catch-22 scenario of Manning. April 5th, 2010 is when WikiLeaks published that. She was arrested in May, May 20th, I think is when she was arrested. So a month later. So this is really when sort of like the the, the climax of her leaking, you know, in Iraq. Um, around the same time she's – when WikiLeaks is publishing this video, she is – in April, she is actually uploading Guarani airstrike stuff, pictures an encrypted video so she was really sort of in full bloom at that point
1: you know it's it's interesting because i've uh, like yourself i followed these events very carefully and closely And, you know, you you, to this moment, including probably most prominently in recent times when it became clear that Obama was going to commute a a large chunk of the 35 year prison sentence. With respect to Chelsea Manning, I looked at the particulars of this case the same way I have the other commutations and pardons that I've done. And uh, I felt that in light of all the circumstances uh, that uh, commuting her sense was uh, entirely appropriate. You then had this parade of people on cable news uh, saying Chelsea Manning is a traitor.
0: She is the greatest, one of the biggest and greatest traitors mm. in United States history and probably in some countries would be have, uh, subjected to a firing squad. Instead, we're paying for a gender selection surgery. That's all I'm going
1: to say. Yes, it caused problems diplomatically for the U.S. and its allies. And it sounds like she herself acknowledged that in the... Uh, in the trial, but it also revealed for the American people some of the inner workings of what their government does in their name around the world. I can understand why she would say it was the one that she was most – concerned about. But uh, if you can't prove that she, I don't mean you, but if these people can't prove that actual damage was done in that way, and you can prove that necessary facts were brought to light, I I think it makes it a much more complicated case than, oh, this person is a traitor. You could make an argument that that is in a democratic spirit of a free society that's obsessed with secrecy and overclassification. But what do you say to people that use that term to describe Chelsea Manning saying she's a traitor?
0: The first thing I say is like I appreciate that you're angry. You know, Manning, it was a soldier and there is an importance to unit cohesiveness and there is a kind of fraternal order to the military. Um, I'm not against fraternal order to the military. And and to tell you the truth, I also think people are entitled to their opinion. You know, if you take provocative acts like this, there are consequences. You know, we, we live in a society. There's a thing called social consensus, blah, 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 blah. Legally, though, she's not a traitor. You know, democracies love to have traitor trials, you know, like you can back to ancient Athens. So, like, I don't think that it's atypical to have these kinds of things. At the same time, though, trials are really important because that is where the boundaries are. You know, for me, it's funny, like people oftentimes say, oh, you're a Manning supporter. And, yes, I Manning earned my respect because she deserved it through the court-martial process. Anybody under that kind of circumstance who handles themselves with such dignity has respect for the proceeding – isn't sitting there like talking to every media outlet, is really focusing on that important institution, the judicial kind of component of society. Um, yeah, I support her. I support that she has a fair trial.
1: Um, when you say legally she's not a traitor, what do you mean?
0: She was acquitted of aiding the enemy. The government went to court.
1: Oh, really? Because I don't think I don't think um, <laughs> any of the people that were commenting on the day Obama made his announcement are aware of that. Yeah. I mean, it really, I mean, I watched the coverage wall to wall. And it's uh, – it's incredible. it's it's stated as fact. you know, she was based I mean, uh, there are people that all say, well, she was convicted of uh, of treason and aiding the enemy. I mean, it's.
0: she wasn't, and it was a big deal that she was acquitted because it really would have actually threatened every US citizen, uh, really any person in the world because aiding the enemy isn't an any person's offense. So essentially what that means is that anybody could be charged under in a military tribunal for aiding the enemy.
1: I want to cut to the a question that I think is, is, we'll hear in her own words when she gets out, but what's your understanding of what was going on in her head at the time and what her motive was for doing this, for leaking all of this?
0: My personal observation as a you know human being sort of looking at another person, listening to how they describe their experiences in the courtroom and what other people say, uh, is Manning was very young. You have to also remember that. And she was highly intelligent to some degree, meaning to say she was – she had a sort of passionate intensity about life. She also had a really difficult upbringing. And I realized that – I'm not painting her out as a victim. I'm just saying that she was in the middle of processing all the kinds of stuff. I don't remember – I don't know if you remember when you were, you know, in your early 20s, but life is pretty intense when you're at that age and you're like, you know, thinking about the world and everything is – learning how to negotiate in the adult world and blah, 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 blah. Her first deployment – then she's also you know, sort of struggling with – she joined the military. Interestingly enough, they found in her dorm. It's called a CHU in Iraq, her compartmentalized housing unit. This scholarly treatise um, written by an Air Force psychiatrist about the fact that it's called Flight into Hypermasculinity where it talks about there's a higher proportion of people who are assigned men but – identify as women in the military than there is in the general population. A lot of times they join the military to try to rid themselves of these feelings. I think what I'm trying to say is that you can't divorce the political, moral, ethical thing from the interpersonal. She also was tasked to learn about – she's a young intelligence analyst, so she's being told to read the State Department cables and do this and that. And you're talking about a very earnest person who might be very literal in their thinking, who cares about the mission. And her co said that about her. She really cared about the mission. Perfectionist. So like you know, you're, you're putting together a young person who has a certain level of experience in how the world works – You know, in reality, she sees all this sort of devastation and pain and suffering, someone who's probably experienced to some degree what it feels like to be on the receiving end of, you know, pain and suffering, being gay in Oklahoma, no offense to anybody from Oklahoma, but, you know, um, being trans and not being able to admit it. So there's all these things going on. And she begins to sort of go towards releasing it because ultimately Manning believed that if the public knew It's not that she was a pacifist. She said she's not a pacifist, but that they would have a better sense of what was going on and be able to make better policies.
3: After the release, I was concerned about the impact of the video and how it would be perceived by the general public. I hope that the video... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. I hope that the public would be as long, alarmed as me about the conduct of, of the aerial weapons team crew members. I wanted the American public to know that not everyone in Iraq and Afghanistan were targets that needed to be neutralized, but rather people who were struggling to live in the pressure cooker environment of what we call
0: asymmetric warfare.
1: At what point does the uh, former hacker turned FBI informant Adrian Lamo come on the scene?
0: He comes on the scene on May 25th, a couple days before she's arrested. Manning saw that Lamo had made a public statement about WikiLeaks. So at this point, you know, WikiLeaks has published collateral murder. They started to talk because their – Lamo had certain sort of sexual identity things that he had talked about and Manning is trying to relate to people, you know, uh, lonely in Iraq, dealing with a lot of – you know, under a lot of pressure. And what ended up happening is that discussion – Lamo had presented himself as a journalist and a preacher even at one point. So there were all these notions of like protection, source protection. And Um, how how were
1: they communicating?
0: They were communicating over AOL chat or IRC chat. I forget which mechanism. Anyway, within like the day that Manning contacted Lamo, before any statement was made regarding any leaks, Lamo had already contacted a friend in Army counterintelligence. So – you know, Manning was essentially done at that point. And of course, in the course of revealing all this stuff, what what happened with Manning is and what put her in a really vulnerable position is she was wide open when the army arrested her. You know, she had no access to explain her narrative. Uh, what was really going on. And she had put out all this personal stuff in this chat log. So it just, it didn't look good.
1: At that point, did the Army, was 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 uh, Manning already under suspicion uh, of being behind this before no. she started talking with Adrienne Limo?
0: To my understanding, no. No, she wasn't. And I only say that because maybe there's classified material that I haven't seen. Um, no, and, and I really think this is what really did her in.
1: So what were the circumstances uh, when she was arrested?
0: So... You know, the, the, obviously U.S. Army Counterintelligence and CID, which is the law enforcement arm of the U.S. Army, they um, were like, you know, busy trying to figure out who this person is, where she was stationed, blah, 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 blah. It wasn't that hard because of the identifying information she gave to Lamo. So she was arrested and because of Adrian Lamo's uh, representations to the media that she had leaked top secret information, which she absolutely had not she was put into pretrial confinement and brought to uh, Camp Arifjan in Kuwait. And, you know, when she was there, she was originally put with other soldiers, but uh, she was placed in administrative segregation when she told them that she was gay.
3: Now, on June 30th, 2010, do you recall losing control of yourself on that day to the point that medical doctors, mental health professionals had to intervene? Uh, Very limited, I have memory of that, um, very vague. and I just remember being told about that, mostly. Do you recall yelling uncontrollably, screaming, shaking, babbling, banging your head against your cell and mumbling? Yeah, those details, no, but I knew that I had, I had just fallen apart. I mean, I, is foggy and hazy from that time period, so.
0: Even Quantico, I mean, we could talk about, oh, Manning was segregated because uh, the army wanted to break her down. I think there was there was an element of also homophobia going on there too. <laughs> um, so she was placed at administrative segregation in this cage and, you know, her hours were switched. Um, she was – she started to deteriorate. She had no access to her lawyer. She started to mentally have a breakdown.
3: And do you recall during this time making a noose out of bedsheets? Uh Vaguely, I mean, I just, I mean, I I remember. I mean, I don't remember that particular. I remember being taken out and uh, and them finding that. Um, I just remember my my stuff being all over the place because after after they started doing the shakedowns, it stopped. I I stopped making my bed and things, you know, um, because it was getting. They were just tearing up all my stuff all the time anyway. So uh, I don't recall making it, um, but I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to die. Stuck here, you know, in this cage, and I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, th- I, thought, I thought I was going to die and That's how I saw it. It's
0: like an animal cage. And so she had one suicide attempt in Camp Arifjan, which, even when she was brought later to Quantico, the brig psychiatrists themselves said that she wasn't suicidal anymore. But the army kept her on this prevention of injury, sort of as a justification for you know her treatment. So she's in Camp Air of John, and she starts to have a mental breakdown. You know, she's facing these, like, really serious charges, blah, 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 blah. They keep her there for, um, oh, God, July. So she's there between May, late May to July. She's at Camp Air of John in Kuwait. Then they bring her to Quantico. Her testimony about Quant- the move, how she was transported, you know, in shackles, and is um, she was actually really grateful to be in the United States. She... Said in her court martial that she wasn't sure if they were going to send her to, to Guantanamo Bay, so she was definitely uh, worried about that kind of stuff. Wow!
3: And how were you feeling at that point when you knew that you were going to be going to the states? I felt a lot better. I mean, I I, I didn't think I was going to set foot on American soil for a long time, so um, I was elated. I mean, as silly as it sounds, it felt a lot better, you know, knowing that. So I, I, I and it was great to be in. Familiar surroundings,
1: American soil, BWI. What was it like uh, covering that trial? What was it like in the courtroom?
0: What was going on in the courtroom? I think uh, think people let go of this because Manning was a low-level, you know, so some people looked at it as like a a troubled character, not very hip, slick, and cool, kind of left themselves wide open. Um, I mean, Manning was everybody's pawn. You know, it's like uh, Snowden can't come to the United States and have a trial because Manning's treatment. It's like nobody gives a shit if she's actually being treated well or not. It's like it it sounds good. It's great propaganda. I thought also it wasn't just about Manning. It's about us. You know, this is our country. This is an important trial. We need to know what's going on here. I understand people are angry and everyone's freaking out and people are using Manning and including WikiLeaks and all everybody, you know, like fundamentally, though, like what the hell happened? (laughs) You know, let's find that out. One of the things, it's not just about Manning personally. When they were discussing the legal interpretation of aiding the enemy, which hadn't been really done since the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War era in the late 1800s, um, their consequences for prosecuting a soldier – with aiding the enemy that will affect everyone in society, you are setting a precedent for prosecuting someone under if there is a certain standard, uh, you know, threshold standard of evidence for publishing information that a terrorist organization, you know, if they're able to obtain any intelligence and intelligence is an interesting legal concept. It means anything that's useful and true. <laughs> you know, that, well, that it doesn't even apply just to classified information um, that you can bring someone into court of law and, and, and accuse them of, of aiding the enemy.
1: I don't think a lot of people know the story of how we ended up even having transcripts of the proceedings against Chelsea Manning. Uh, Start from the beginning about what – sort of the the, the first moment you realize something's rotten in Denmark here.
0: The information, much of it was published on the internet, although it was still legally classified. So there were large portions that were central to her um, – elements of her criminal charges that the public – um, could not impeach with their own analysis. The unfortunate thing about that is that the government was in complete control of the message coming out of Fort Meade. You know, if you were a member of the press at Fort Meade, you were essentially escorted by security at all times. It's almost it was almost better to go as a member of the public because you didn't have like pe- I mean military guards around you. And uh, you know, they wanted to portray. Their sort of narrative was like embittered, homosexual, angry at army. Like that was like the Manning message. And there was a more important story that needed to be told. So the secrecy impeded public understanding. And then you had the sort of competing interests of, you know, capitalist media and just – also just – we don't even need to use the word capitalism. We could just use people looking for money, property, prestige, you know, where they're trying to like get the – you know, gotcha story. And in all of that public deliberation about this important court martial was sort of getting lost.
1: We only have heard Manning's voice in in very small snippets that were leaked out of the proceedings. But having been there for for all of this, when she finally did speak and described why she did what she did, what was your big takeaway from, from her own words?
0: I say this so repeatedly, I, I sometimes feel like people don't think I can have like original thinking or like think beyond one thought. But she's incredibly earnest. Yeah, Manning was was a humanist, you know, and that's a really fancy sort of word for like she didn't want to hurt anybody. I think that she, first of all, she's more of a soldier than I think people realize when they hear her voice talk. You know, she she's she's been in, she's been in the military a very long time, even if it's in a prison. And she's said publicly she's not a pacifist. You know, she's she didn't join the military because she was a pacifist. She is a thoughtful person. She's very meticulous in her thinking. She talked about how much she respected her chain of command. She even talked about how much she liked the Marine at Quantico, who was playing mind games with her, her counselor, um, telling her, you know, asking her, you know, why are you still on suicide, you know, risk or sorry, prevention of injury watch? When that counselor knew that he was the one who was putting her on it because the psychiatrist was saying, take her off, Um, she talked about what a great Marine he was. Manning, and I think defense sort of represented it this way Manning was good to everybody. She got mistreated because of her, you know, what people thought of her, but she was the type of person who was always concerned about other people. And that's the kind of person I saw on the stand.
1: On reflection, um, what do you think we as a society should learn from the whole thing? What Chelsea Manning did, what happened in her trial, the sentence she received, and then this 11th hour commutation uh, of most of the sentence by Obama?
0: Mercy is not, mercy and earnestness are not the way of the weak. You know, I think there's a lot of strength in mercy. There's a lot of strength in trusting that if you are able to look at a situation clearly without hysteria or that, um, you know, you're going to show you're, you're a weak person. I don't think that's true. Um, I think, it, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in mercy and fair sentences, first of all. And then also on a kind of personal uh, – the, the, the big takeaway for me is that Manning played a really earnest case in a military court martial, and she's out of prison. And I think that that's like – I think moral tales are really important. Maybe they're not true, but they're really important for liberal democracies because they sort of like set the bar for how we're supposed to treat each other. So I think that the fact that Manning was an earnest character and that she played a really tight case, that she didn't sort of propagandize herself to the media, that she sort of respected the institutions of society was the counterbalance to the unilateralism of, of leaking. Trials are important. Fair trials are even more important to liberal democracies. Um, so the takeaway is that the the good person who who is virtuous won, and I think that's an important concept in sort of justice. May not always be the truth, but it feels good when it actually happens.
1: Well, Alexa O'Brien, I've always admired the work that you've uh, you've done, and I often publicly cite your work because I think it was so uh, it was it was like a classroom. I think for. Uh, A lot of people to see how a a human being covers something so complicated as this. So I I just wanted to thank you in person for that. And also thank you for joining us. Thank you. Alexa O'Brien is an independent researcher and writer focusing on national security and law enforcement. When we come back, we're going to go to France. There's a great celebration that the fascist candidate Marine Le Pen was defeated last week in that country's presidential election. But who is the victor, Emmanuel Macron? Stay with us. And we are back here on Intercepted. Emmanuel Macron's defeat of Marine Le Pen in the French presidential election on Sunday uh, is being portrayed as a triumph of sane people, over far-right extremism. Proof that the wave of so-called nationalist populism in the West can be stopped. Le Pen would not replicate the great Trump shocker. In France, the narrative goes, the reasonable candidate won, unlike in the US. Well, French voters dealt a massive repudiation, not just to Marine Le Pen, but to the anti-immigrant, anti-European politics that she represents. Looks like that populist wave that had washed across the U.S. and Britain has crashed here tonight on French shores. But that's a radically oversimplified narrative. Who actually is Emmanuel Macron? And what does his win actually mean? He billed himself as a business-minded centrist, a political outsider, neither right nor left. But the situation in France is far more complex than Macron's campaign— He won a lesser of two evils election that many French people didn't even turn out for. The anti-immigrant, Islamophobic vitriol of Marine Le Pen, that aided Macron's victory because it was so public and because it was so vile. But many of the underlying sentiments that Le Pen bombastically advocated, they've already been on a steady rise in the mainstream of French politics, the building up of a surveillance state, the targeting of Muslims, the militarization of law enforcement. In that regard, France is not so different from the United States. To discuss all of this, we go now to Paris, where we're joined by Yasser Loati. He is a French human rights and civil liberties activist, and his work lately has focused around national security policies, Islamophobia, and social justice for minorities in France. Yasser, welcome to Intercepted. Uh, thank you for having me, Jeremy. So, what's your analysis of what happened in this election and who Macron is and what he represents?
5: well actually the rise of uh, emmanuel macron was a clear indication that there is a political vacuum in france that a person can go from being a completely unknown to to everybody in the country to becoming president within 18 months uh, signals that it was just a way for him to navigate through the failures of our system, the weaknesses of the existing politicians in power, and as for him being described neither left or right, to my humble analysis, to me that's just a um, a very sane capitalist approach. Because the the choices are there. It is either fascism on the one hand, and if you want to do a bit better, you choose Emmanuel Macron, who's going to to lock you into the um, proletarian of the digital age. Loosely speaking, in the United States, part of the
1: argument that uh, supporters of Hillary Clinton were making to the anti-war, pro-civil liberties, anti-neoliberal economics left was we have to stop Trump from taking power so even if you don't like Hillary, you should vote for her so that we don't get Trump. Was that part of the sentiment in France as well?
5: Yes, definitely it is not a coincidence that 14 million people uh, decided to abstain from voting. you know it makes you feel that you know the oligarchs in any country want to make sure that there is a rise. Of the far right, in order to hold you hostage and tell you, well, you have no other choice. It's either us or the evil candidate from the far right. Well, the Americans uh, chose Donald Trump, and we saw and we are seeing the results uh, on a daily basis. But in France, the victory of Emmanuel Macron tastes very bitter because the whole country was deprived of a sane political campaign. What's happening in France is similar to what's happening in many Western so-called liberal democracies, is that the political system is completely failed and that we, we always engage into holding people hostages to leave them with no other choice. And that's what makes Marine Le Pen now a person you cannot ignore and that she She's here to stay, and her ideas are here to stay. You
1: know, it's it's interesting because um, uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama recorded a video. I'm not planning to get involved in many elections now that I don't have to run for office again. But the French election is very important to the future of France and the values
3: that we care so much about. Because of how important this election is, I also want you to know that I am supporting Emmanuel Macron to lead you forward. En
2: marche. Bibla la France. Uh,
1: Obama has only said a handful of things about President Donald Trump and has largely been either on vacation or staying quiet. What was your analysis of uh, of Obama's video advocating for Macron?
5: Uh, to be honest, I didn't like it at all. It was interference from a former American president. It was not welcome. I do not know under what title or under, under what merit he, you know, he he thinks he can intervene in in this election and, and if, you know, his voice would somehow help Emmanuel Macron, especially when we know the legacy of Barack Obama in terms of militarization of the police in America, with the mass surveillance, the, the explosion in drone attacks around the, the world, and of course, the, the empowering of the military-industrial complex. So if a person like Barack Obama, who was held as a symbol of progress in the U.S. thinks, you know, he can send a positive message here in France. For me, it wasn't welcome. And uh, uh, generally speaking, in France, it did not weigh that much. You know, we spoke about it here and there, but it did not get that much attention.
1: One of the main points of emphasis in the global news media about Marine Le Pen was this issue of her anti immigration stance, her racism, the Islamophobia of her party. And of course, that is also some of the focus on Donald Trump in the United States. Break down for us what France is already like before you were facing the possibility of Marine Le Pen on issues of xenophobia, anti immigrant movements or sentiment, and Islamophobia.
5: Uh, laws began being passed specifically targeting Muslims. For for example, in 1987, there was the first review of the citizenship code because it was the um, a few years after the second generation of French Muslims marched and demanded equality. Than we had. The 2004 law excluding Muslim girls wearing a headscarf from public schools, and then the law was extended to their mothers should they want to attend school field trips, and then it was extended to prevent uh, Muslim nannies from working from home. You can't even work in France if you're wearing a headscarf as a Muslim woman, etc. All of that was adopted under a mainstream right party. The law on surveillance, we have had the criminalization of the BDS movement, the criminalization of social movements, the militarization of the police, the attempt to even change the French constitution in order to strip from their citizenship people who are convicted of acts of terror, meaning that if a person is charged with terrorism and convicted, he loses his citizenship. We can make a very simple comparison with historic uh, terrorist groups. When terrorism was white in the 1950s, nobody spoke about revoking their citizenship, even if they had had attempted to overthrow the president, uh, Charles de Gaulle. Nobody tried to to revoke the citizenship of the far-left white terrorists in the 60s and 70s. And the list goes on, but the day terrorism went from white to brown, then it it became a question of identity. And that's why the scores of Marine Le Pen are an indication that it's not a question of uh, the far-right rising. No, it's a question of the growing adherence to far-right ideas from, again, the the whole political spectrum in France. Now, you
1: know, of, of course, when you look at someone like Marine Le Pen, it's almost like a sickening cartoon version of a political figure in the sense that she is so overt about her agenda of hatred. But now that we have the reality of Emmanuel Macron, what do you see as the dangers that his ascent to power
5: represents? the deep divide along racial and social lines in France, and the fact that the the racist rhetoric has been so normalized in France and so acceptable within the political elite and within mainstream media, that it will take beyond human courage to go against that. The other danger is that uh, he will inherit a police state that has been passed in the 30 years all of them greatly expanding the powers of the executive, weakening our justice system. And instead, at least from learning the lesson of mass surveillance and being, you know, spied on by their own allies, France passes this law to put on surveillance the whole country. All your digital information is gathered in one single file held by the government, that the government itself can share with the whole of the European Union and Interpol. That's a very dangerous step, yet that's where we are. And of course, the current state of emergency. The figures are staggering. 4,200 raids have been carried. Only six inquiries on terror-rated charges have been launched so far. And you have, for example... A state official saying that we have we have been targeting visibly practicing Muslims. And this is when racism comes in handy to pass uh, repressive measures and to implement totalitarian regimes. You begin by uh, scapegoating minorities and holding them as that extraordinary enemy requiring extraordinary powers. But after passing all these laws on the back of the ethnic neighborhoods that we call the banlieue here in France on the back of Muslims in the so-called war against terror. These measures have been extended to our anarchist friends, to the union leaders, to environmentalists. And that has become so normal that we have held several elections under the state of emergency and nobody is asking the question, what are we doing? It's been over a year and a half. The state of emergency has failed. It did not prevent any terrorist attack. And at the same time, you are implementing what we call a totalitarian state.
1: Now, in the United States, of course, we have, uh, there's a lot of racial profiling and also profiling of uh, Muslims, particularly in the case of our airports. And of course, Donald Trump, you know, is still continuing to try to push through uh, his Muslim ban. Uh, You know, he's had to revise it and he's battling our courts right now in the United States. But Uh, You know, we've published secret US government documents showing that Muslims are targeted in disproportionate numbers in the terror watch listing system in the United States. Is that the situation in France as well for Muslims?
5: The racial profiling thing in our case in France is directly inherited from France's colonial past. We we you know I, I know in the US you know I, can, I went to school in the US I'm quite familiar with the romantic view people have of France and you know hugs and you know perfume etc but the reality is that France is a colonial republic. And the current republic we live under called the Fifth Republic had its uh, constitution adopted in 1958 in the midst of the bloody repression of the uh, liberation movements in the colonies, which means that our institutions today work according to a colonial model so it is no coincidence that if you are a black or an arab person in france you are 20 times more likely of being racially profiled by the police if you are a muslim person in france you are four times less likely of receiving a positive answer to your job application so that mean like you know there are deep roots for racism in France, it is structural and the reason why Emmanuel Macron will not be capable of tackling these issues today because he has not been as ambitious as to push for a new constitution, a post-colonial and post-racial constitution that will recognize once and for all that France is not a white only country. And it has a huge debt to the black and brown and Muslims who not only freed it from the Nazis, while its white elite was collaborating with Hitler and sending the Jews to the death camps, but also rebuilt the country after the Second World War. The, the people who were brought to France from the former colonies were brought here to work and rebuild the country. So I hope you see the, the extent of the problem and that it's different manifestations, be it the fear-mongering to justify security measures, the constant uh, singling out of communities, they all go back to a colonial republic.
1: All right, uh, Yasser Loati, it was uh, really uh, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining us on Intercepted.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Yasser Lawati is a French human rights and civil liberties activist. He spoke to us from Paris. To end today's show, we are honored to have the exclusive premiere of a new song by the hip-hop artists MC Soul and DJ Payne One. Uh, They have a new album that's going to be coming out a bit down the road. Uh, Their last album, uh, which really is an incredible political underground hip-hop album, was called Nihilismo. Uh, They also did the title track for the uh, documentary about drone whistleblowers uh, called National Bird. And here is MC Soul and DJ Payne One with their new track, Wrong Side of the Law.
6: DJ Payne won. What you think this is? A cop on every phone. Everything you need delivered to your home. No secret societies, they move out in the open. We can spot privately and out in the open. I try to cope. The weed slows me down, breathe. When I can, everything is faster now. We come a long way from stealing frontiers, sitting on front lawns, drinking cold beer on a lawn chair, feeling lawless. We know who they apply to. Everyone it takes to build that wall inside you. There's a border guard in my head, and he's telling me to stay on the side of the fence. It's safe. Um, I don't feel safe yet. And staying in my lane is some privileged shit. On the wrong side of the law, black at night. Day. son of a cleric who denounces the war crimes of the USA, trans in the winning fist fight where the rapist doesn't get away, we gon' ride like doom horses on chariots, I speak with the clan that's scared shitless, you're fearless, cause there is no way out, so through the barrels, don't hate me, hate the game I play, it's an MMORPG I can't log out, a first person shooter with the rules and paper of a computer, don't want me to I got, it's all I got And I'm still too young to fuck all the- hand in an enemy mind if we break the chains that contain the powers that can't from the powers that be from the people who want huddled by a monitor watching it pass you by the wrong side of the law on the side of the right line who believes them when they say they it? who would kill us all off in a flood hard to separate the drowned from the survivors who's thriving from who was enslaved who sharpens the axe from who swings their blade he who yields the power of the state murderers in various shades don't be complicit find your accomplices listen to the beast huh. beating the better slit it ralph waldo emerson and So are coming them now. a hundred miles and running and point one acre and standing armed Said it as soon as you assert a right, then you ain't got it. So don't talk to me about your rights, talk to me about do's and don'ts. Cans and can'ts who will fight and who will watch it all happen and share horror. We're not in Kansas, no more. We're beyond the pale. The tiny hands that carry the nuclear suitcase will make us all equal when they eliminate the human.
1: MC Soul and DJ Payne One performing Wrong Side of the Law. Many thanks to them for their work, their words, and to DJ Payne One for his beats. We're going to post links to both of their webpages on our site. We encourage you to check out their work. And finally, just a heads up, on Thursday, June 8th, I'm going to be uh, emceeing a really exciting day of debate, speaking, analyzing, a little bit of music here and there at the Northside Festival in Brooklyn. Uh, You can check out information about the whole lineup there and get info on how to get your tickets, theintercept.com slash Northside. That does it for this season two premiere of Intercepted. Join us on Twitter, where our handle is Intercepted. Let us know who you would like to hear on this season of the show, and also be sure to check out all of the journalism at theintercept.com. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Tal Malad. Rick Kwan mixed the show. We had production assistance from Elise Swain. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill.
2: How am I doing? Am I doing? Okay, I'm president. Hey, I'm president.
5: Did you believe it, right? All right. The president has just said it. That's great.